It is very cold outside. It has been snowing here in Flagstaff, Arizona. The temperatures are in the 30s. Winter is coming. Hello and welcome to episode 19 of Blinded by Sports on the Cannon on the Cannon Clark podcast. I am your host, the Cannon Clark himself, Sean Clark. I am joined by a great co-host, Colin Fuchs. Colin, how are we doing down there in warmer Orlando, Florida? Sean, you know, out in Flagstaff, the weather outside is frightful, but the sports are so delightful. That's right. We're back with the sports. I know. That's what we're here for. I, I hope you like that turn of phrase. Uh, you know, we're, we're getting hit by the little edges of the Hurricane Ada out here. Uh, doing all right. Just getting a bunch of rain and then sunshine and, you know, all the weather in between. But we're doing, we're doing fantastic. Winter hasn't come quite yet. It's a, it's a nice warm 79 degrees in middle of November. <laughs> Colin with the rhyming to start. All right. I love to see it. All right, let's get into it. So obviously, got to start in England with the Premier League because that's what we always do. So we're going to do something a little bit different as we head into the international break, and we'll discuss a particular match during the international break later. Well, let's just do a, let's just do a, a reaction segment. So, so let's take a look at the Premier League top four as we head into this international break. So I'm just going to just going to list off the four teams and then Colin get your reaction to this. So at the top of the table is Leicester city. Yes. The same club that was in the top three, most of the season last season, then epically tanked during project restart and missed the champions league. They are currently at the top of the table, even though Ben Showell is gone. Tottenham is number two, which is making Colin's preseason prediction look really good right now. Although Gareth Bale is now injured. Shocker. <laughs> Shocker, indeed. Uh, the third team in the, in the table is Liverpool. Shocker there in the top four. Although they haven't looked quite as great as last year for a very obvious reason. They are still third. And fourth is, wait, 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 wait a minute, Southampton. Oh, so just to, so that's only two of the of the traditional six of the Premier League are not in this top four. Arsenal, well, they're terrible, so obviously they're not. Chelsea, not quite up there yet, although they're fifth. And both Manchester's are not up there. I did not say Manchester clubs. So, Colin, what's your reaction to this? Uh, to say obviously seeing Southampton up there is shocking to say the least uh i don't think you or i would have said that southampton was at least in the top six was they weren't qualifying to for europa spot to say the least uh liverpool being top three is not shocking they kept a lot of their their same roster and they've made some key additions in diego jota um obviously tottenham being number two i would say that was probably the most shocking out of all of it uh maybe even leicester being number one uh but leicester obviously like you mentioned top three almost the entire season then project restart happened and then you know fell to their untimely demise uh but you look at what they've done in their last five three oh and two jamie vardy currently tied for first in the golden boot race along with calvert lewin sung hyun man and muhammad salah uh but what this has changed about this club is the fact that in even previous seasons it seemed that when it they would be ahead it was because you know vardy got two or three goals um and it it would be maybe like a 3-1 win things like that 
Leicester is now finding themselves forced into more position where they're having to grind out wins and they're actually doing it to some success, obviously. Like I mentioned, 3 0 and 2. Um, not great, but they, they're looking a little better. And what we mentioned previously when we were doing our uh, season preview of the Premier League is we were worried about Leicester's you know, defense, especially after Ben Chilwell left. And with good reason, because obviously we saw their first two matches, they conceded plenty. But they've kind of tended to step up a little bit more. They look a little bit more cohesive now. They're only doing three in the back, and they're relying more on that midfield presence, which they're definitely getting. And I think what I like about Leicester is they have a solid depth. I mean, you look at the bench that they had against Leeds United. Obviously, they had uh, Vardy come on, Vardy come on. But then you look at they had uh, James Madison, they had Ian Nacho, and then Chowdhury on it. Um, and so this is, I think, a team that has some underrated depth with it which is like going to obviously, especially in the Premier League, now that you're back to a regular season. And this is the only league that has changed the policy on the substitution rule from COVID of the five subs. They're back to doing three again. And uh, Jurgen Klopp has definitely criticized, you know, the Premier League ownership, just saying that's, yeah, ridiculous. They, they, and we're seeing the injuries to back that up. Obviously, we've seen James Rodriguez, who had a minor injury. So we think, uh, we've obviously seen Gareth Bale now go out again. So more injuries are just going to continue to happen. Uh, Tottenham are, you know, 4-1-0 and in their last five. You're looking at Liverpool being 2-2-1, not convincing there. Let's talk Southampton, though. 4-1-0, and just like Tottenham. You know, no losses in their last five. However, their defense does tend to be all over the place. They're either going to have a shutout on you and, you know, keep a clean sheet, or they're going to allow multiple goals past you and have to leave, you know, you on the edge of your seat like they did um, in that 4-3 in four three victory over Aston Villa, I believe it was. Who knows? Uh, but obviously, Theo Walcott has seen his fair share of Premier League clubs in his time. And he seems to finally be finding his stride here. I know you're crying right now, Sean. Uh, probably has scored one of the most beautiful goals for Arsenal, at least individually, you know, when he slides on his knees in the 18 and stays alive for the play and ends up burying it anyways. Fantastic goal. Um, but he seems to be finding his stride, especially with Southampton. Che Adams, obviously a great goal scorer himself. But one thing that they've been able to do so well is in their midfield, they've been able to dictate the games themselves. They dictate, dictate the matches um, but the biggest thing that they need to figure out here soon is they seem to struggle against clubs that tend to higher press you, that seem to force you to chase after the ball because in their last matchup that was 2-0, they weren't really under any pressure from Newcastle. They're not going to give you that high press. So they had almost 70% possession that entire match, which is ridiculous. Um, but then you go up against a teams like a Leeds United, you go up against a Liverpool, like a Man City that's going to press you. They're going to struggle against a club like that. But congrats to Southampton who have, not only were they leading the top of the league because they had the first match of the day for the first time since 1988, but just the fact that they find themselves in the top four after eight matches played, congrats to them. Southampton has been exciting to watch this season, to say the least. They, yeah, they beat Austin Villa 4-3, to three, and they were up 4 nothing. So Austin Villa came back and made that an incredible match. Uh, two of those goals were from were from a set pieces. Uh, Yannick Vestergaard and James Ward-Prowse all scored on free kicks. They have they have great goal scoring ability across their midfield and their front line. So they have a lot of different scoring options. Che Adams scored the winning goal in their two 0 win over Newcastle United, which is 
a solid win because Newcastle United has been a solid club this season. They sit in the middle of the table and Callum Wilson has been a legit score and they kept him off the score sheet. So Southampton being number four is very surprising. Tottenham, if you think about it, they have basically been nearly perfect outside from, you know, blowing a three nil lead to West Ham as Manuel Lanzini hit one of the most insane volleys of all time. I, I, yeah, chef's kiss indeed. Liverpool, third, not surprising. How about Diogo Yoda? Three goals so far in Premier League play this season, including four other goals in Champions League group stage play. So he has been a sensational player. And I got a feeling that Roberto Firmino is going to get sold at some point. He has not been as productive for the club in the past year. And Yoda has really taken his place on, on the front line as, alongside Sadio Mane and, and Mohamed Salah. So that's a very good revelation for Liverpool. And last but not least, Leicester City. They have been beating good clubs this season. They beat Leeds United 4-1, to which Leeds United is no pushover, as they have proven this season. Patrick Bamford has been an absolute stud. They beat Man City early in the season 5 to two five to two and this past weekend they beat wolverhampton a club that has a tremendous attack one nil they shut them out jamie vardy scored the winning goal on a penalty kick in the 17th minute the the thing i like about Leicester is that they're not as dependent on 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 vardy to, to score yes he has been their leading goal scorer by far but they have other playmakers madison has really stepped up this season and, and Jordi Tielemans has been more of a playmaker this season than he was last season. So Leicester has really stepped up. And as long as they can get other creative options, they should be fine to stay in the top four this season. Yeah, they, they definitely look comfortable in that top four. But going back to Liverpool really quick, I just want to know, I'm going to touch on this before we move on. But Jurgen Klopp, what are you thinking putting Roberto Firmino in a, in a center attacking midfield role? That's not where he's meant to play. I get Mohamed Salah up top because he's been your best goal scorer, but Diego Jota is obviously much better. You And you have Jordan Shakiri on your bench, who's more of a traditional midfielder, even attacking midfield. So I, I didn't understand that move there, but obviously, you know, I'm not an international manager, so... <laughs> Yeah, that makes as much sense as putting a pyramid of bombing on the wing and having Alexandre Lancas at the striker. That, that That's also completely dumb, too. <clears throat> well, that would never happen. Oh, yeah. Oh, wait. They do do that. Anyways, it's a topic for another time. All right. Moving on, kind of skipping across the pond in a way because we're also partly staying in Europe, too. So the U.S. men's national team is about to play their first match since COVID happened all the way back in March. Wow, that was eight months ago. Crazy. Yeah, it was It was starting tomorrow. It was eight months ago that all this madness started breaking out, which is insane how time has flown since then. But yeah, the U.S. men's national team is back, and they're going to play an international friendly against Wales. Colin, the U.S. men's national team expert, how do you see this match going? This is first off, just having the men's national team, you know, finally back in action, being able to watch them play again is fantastic. Uh, and we're finally going to get to see this new identity of Greg Burhalter and what he has to put forth with this club, uh, simply because of the fact there's no MLS players in it, simply because he respects the 
the MLS playoffs. He respects all uh, what the coaches need and what the players meant to them. Because obviously you could have called in players. Obviously Sebastian Legette being the only one coming in due to due to uh, injury to another midfielder on the club. But you know you could call in a Jordan Morris. You could call in uh, Christian Roldan. You could call in Paxton Palmacall. There's plenty of guys that have options for you to fill in that midfield spot. But due to people being in playoffs, that's why Legit got the call up because no galaxy no playoffs um <laughs> uh but the uh to put in perspective of how new this matchup is the u.s has only played the welsh national team one other time and that was a two nil win back in 2003 when goals scored by landon donovan and eddie lewis and nick Romando posted a shutout uh wow yeah 2003 so it's 17 years in the making but again, like I said, this is, a, this is a new identity with a new club, and we're getting to see some fresh faces too. Uh, but my prediction for the starting 11, I think in goal, you're going to have Zach Steffen. Um, obviously not only proven in MLS, but he's uh, been dealt out on loan, but he's also obviously got the study underneath Manchester City, uh, looking at Ederson, you know, definitely one of the top five goalkeepers in Premier League. Um, and then in the defense, you're going to put John Brooks, Serginio Dest, uh, Tim Ream, and I believe it or not, Sean, I think our guy Reggie Cannon is going to get the start. I'm going to say it now simply because when it comes to other right back or even left back options, I really don't like Anthony Robinson being back there. He was uh, back when um, Jurgen Klinsmann was kind of giving him trials. It wasn't going too well. He seems susceptible on the counterattack, even though he's pretty solid in the um, forward play. Someone who knows this, like myself and knew who over on the Sounders. <clears throat> Um, <laughs> and then over in the midfield, I think you're going to get Tyler Adams. I th- obviously you're going to get Weston McKinney. Um, but then I think you're going to get Cardoso who plays out for Internacional over, uh, in the Brazilian league, uh, getting, you know, Johnny Cardoso, or they call him Johnny soccer, apparently in Brazil, uh, looks good. He's getting his first international call up. And I think for someone to help solidify that midfield a little bit more, and this is going to definitely be an attack heavy, uh, club here attack heavy team uh so they're going to put geo reina christian Pulisic, and i think josh Sargent is going to be up top so uh that's my predicted starting 11 and i think this matchup especially now that gareth bale is out uh you look at the names that you know are being put towards the welsh you know 23 or whatever they called up uh this is just it's a very defensive heavy uh international team so I think this is going to end up being at, I want to say like 3-1. I'm going to confidently say 3-1, the U.S. men's team will end up winning. Yeah, Josh Sargent is not able to play in this match because he is stuck with Werder Bremen right now. So he is not able to play. And Sebastian Legette, well, he doesn't have a season more because, you know, the LA Galaxy did not make the playoffs, which is still weird to say, but that is the case. Pulisic has been nursing a hamstring, so... He's not going to be able to play. But I am very interested to see what the U.S. men's national team does up front. Uh, Vea most likely will be the starter. He is. He spent time with PSG, currently playing in the French League right now. What I'm interested in seeing for the U.S. men's national team as well is I want to see the midfield duo of Tyler Adams and Weston McKinney. Uh, According to a projected lineup that I also saw, they have both of them playing at kind of the central defensive midfield kind of area, which is interesting because Tyler Adams is more of an attacking midfielder. So it'll be very interesting to see what Tyler Adams can do in that spot. 
And because Pulisic is out, I actually think this is going to be a lower scoring match than you think it's going to be. I'm going to pick 1-0 U.S. over Wales. I'm going to pick 1-0. I think Zach Steffen gets the shutout. I don't think Wales puts up much of a fight offensively and without Pulisic. There's, there's not going to be as much creativity with the attack, but there still be just enough. And I think and I think the, Sebastian Legette's going to score the one goal. He, he has... He has, he has delivered when the ball has gotten to him. He's been a better goal scorer for LA Galaxy than Chicharito has this season. So I think Legette's going to find the winning goal, and it's going to be about early in the second half. So I think U.S. pulls out a 1-0 win over Wales. It's definitely a, yeah interesting project. I totally forgot about Sargent and Pulisic because of their injuries. But I, I still think the, the U.S. gets more than one goal. I think there's just two – you know, you mentioned Tyler Adams even playing in a defensive midfield role. We even see him switch back to uh, left back at times for Leipzig, but we know the type of balls he can put in. Even McKinney, I think this team will be more dangerous on set pieces if they get any. Uh, so I think they at least get more than one goal. But we, we both agree it's a U.S. win, to say the least. Yes. All right. Moving to the NFL – we, this this will be a topic that we talk on both Blind Advice Sports and Ahead of the Count because this game was just too what on earth just happened. So both so both Confucius and Johnny Cream will have their opinions on this. But Sunday Night Football was supposed to be an epic showdown between Tom Brady and Drew Brees. Battle for the NFC South Division lead. There's a lot of hype going into this match to say the least. Well, it was over in the first quarter as the Tampa Buccaneers on their first four possessions went three and out. The New Orleans Saints ended up winning this game 38 to three. And it was 28 nothing at halftime. It was 28 nothing at halftime. And it was at Tampa Bay. So that means that New Orleans sweeps the season series after being the Buccaneers at home in week one. Colin, what on earth was that? Uh, yeah, just a quick correction. It was, it was 31 to nothing at halftime. Yeah. 31 to nothing. Um, what even happened? Cause you know, this, this Tampa Bay team was kind of rolling for a little bit. They seemed very confident. Tom Brady seemed to, you know, obviously with a new team, he seemed to have found his stride over there in Tampa, but yikes. Uh, first off, there was no running game whatsoever. The saints allowed Eight rushing yards, a whopping eight rushing yards. Granted, there wasn't a lot of attempts, but when you have Tom Brady, who's even himself struggled, went 22 for 38, 209 yards and three interceptions, uh, you figure you're going to try and run the ball at a certain point. But no, um, the Saints only allowed eight rushing yards. They were one for nine on third down conversions. Um, and then the Bucks defense couldn't do anything either. They allowed 420 yards, and they couldn't stop either side of the ball as Alvin Kamara – um, and company almost put up 140 rushing yards. Drew Brees threw for over like 200-something passing yards. Um, and the Bucks didn't finally score until the fourth quarter. There was no scoring in the third, but they finally got their score in the fourth quarter. Um, this was, I think, a complete total meltdown by Tampa Bay, to say the least. Uh, Bruce Arians has actually been very critical of Tom Brady, uh, which is fair, you know, when you're a six-time Super Bowl champion, you expect to hold yourself with a little bit of a higher standard. Um, this was this was an abysmal game from Tom Brady, which is weird to say because normally he's not shut down like this. Even he's obviously played 
tough teams in his past and he's obviously struggled, but this is the worst loss in his career. Obviously he's had a long one. And uh, there was previously, I want to say 31 points originally was his worst loss. Um, only for them to end up winning the Super Bowl still that season. That was back in 2003. And uh, yeah, here we are 17 years later, um, th- lost by 35 points. And the Saints are now in control of the division. Um, and we, Sean, you've even said it yourself, the Saints aren't even the best team in the NFC. You, we talked about last week, you know, we thought Green Bay is potentially better. We thought, um, or they're, I'm sorry, best in the league we talked about last week. We obviously have said the Chiefs, we've talked um you know Seahawks being better obviously we'll gather into that we've talked about Green Bay being better uh the Saints looked real good though um Sean Payton's team definitely looked very confident they looked uh they wanted to get this divisional win out of the way just so they can get that control of the controller on destiny kind of thing and yeah this was I don't know what happened in Tampa Bay but Bruce Arians is furious now with Tom Brady there's just no answers for the, this was just a pure dominance by new Orleans. So congrats to them. Congrats to them. Indeed. This is the stat that sums up the game to me. Colin, do you know how many different players catch caught a pass from Drew Brees in this game? How many did he have? 12, 12 for context about an average amount of pass catchers in a game for an NFL team usually ranges around six or seven. That's about average, I would say. Sometimes it's about five, sometimes about eight, but 12, 12. Drew Brees spread the ball around. No player had more than five catches, and that was Michael Thomas, who, if you if you look at Michael Thomas' season, his only two games he's played this season were both against Tampa Bay. So having Michael Thomas back is huge. The Saints have low-key won five games in a row. They started one and two, and they have won five games in a row. Now, a lot of those wins were, frankly, not very impressive. They they beat the Panthers in a one-possession game at home. They had to come back and beat the L.A. Chargers, the team that honestly has had worse chokes than the Falcons this season, which is saying a lot. The, they haven't looked terribly impressive, but now the Saints have broken out. Michael Thomas has come back. The Saints look as great as they have had all season. Their defense completely shut down Tampa Bay, and the reason for this is that Tampa Bay doesn't have an identity. They don't have an established running game when it, when it matters against top teams. The Saints have had one of the best rush defenses the last four years, and when the running game is taken away, what do they have? Mike Evans on the outside? Oh, wait, against New Orleans, that doesn't work because Marshawn Lattimore. You want to hear this crazy stat? Mike Evans has been targeted six times against Marshawn Lattimore in the last three matchups against him. Zero receptions. Zero. Zero. Mike Evans is an easy guy to shut down either. No, he's not. He's big and he's fast. And Marshawn Lattimore's completely shut them down. Godwin has been in and out of the lineup with injuries. Scotty Miller is a decent slot receiver, but he's not what Adam Humphreys was several years ago. Gronkowski is great and all, but Demario Davis just took him away completely. So the Tampa Buccaneers had no identity against the Saints. Now, against lesser defenses, they have a lot of different options. But against the Saints, they had no identity whatsoever. They couldn't get anything going. That No one could get open. Brady couldn't get protection. They couldn't run the ball. They couldn't do anything right. It was a complete and utter meltdown. They, they looked completely unprepared. They looked lifeless. 
and it looked like the Saints literally had a stranglehold over them on every single aspect of the field. The Tampa Bay matches up so poorly against the Saints, and if you see another matchup like this, that's going to doom Tampa Bay. Now, here's the good news for Tampa Bay, though. I don't think there's another team in the NFC that can do this to Tampa Bay. As long as Tampa Bay can avoid New Orleans going forward, they should be more than fine. Let me break this down. Seattle's defense is atrocious, as we're about to talk about, and, they, and Seattle also has no running game. Green Bay, well, you saw what Tampa Bay did to them. Tampa, Green Bay, if they get punched in the mouth, they quit. That They have proven to do that over the last year and a half. San Francisco is injured to the, the most injured team I've literally ever seen. I don't even recognize the existence of that Thursday night game last week because the 49ers were so injured. NFC East is nothing but garbage. The NFC and the Arizona Cardinals, their defense is not very good. They gave up 38 points to the Miami Dolphins. The LA Rams are turnover prone. The NFC is very weak this season, and it is highly possible. It is highly possible that the Buccaneers and Saints may be the two best teams in the NFC. And the Saints, as long as they continue to play good defense, and as long as Michael Thomas and Alvin Kamara stay healthy, I think the Saints may have put a stamp on the fact that they may be the best team in the NFC this year because Seattle has become completely one-dimensional, and Green Bay just isn't it. They just, they just aren't it. And I think the Saints are a much better team since week three when the Packers beat the Saints 37-30. to and that was, you know, still a close game. The Saints look as look as elite as they have had in the last four years. But I'll just I'll just end off with this question. Saints have now proven that they're probably going to win this division if they swept Tampa Bay, and they're one of the best teams in the NFC. How are they going to lose in the playoffs this year? I cannot wait to see because the last three years in the playoffs they have lost some of the most heartbreaking ways you can possibly lose in the NFL. Let's see what year four brings. Bring it on. Oh, man, what a big question, Sean. Especially you look at the remaining schedule. They only have, if you really look, the Saints have one real tough opponent left over, and that's obviously who you and I would say is the best team in the league is the Kansas City Chiefs. That's the one, the one team they have that can really put a damper on the rest of their season. But they've got the Niners, the Falcons, the Broncos, the Falcons again, the Eagles, and then the Chiefs game, the Vikings who have been – hit or miss this season depends on how good Dalvin Cook wants to play and then the Panthers. So definitely uh, the Saints could finish with a very favorable record, could finish on top of the NFC, could potentially make it back to the Super Bowl depending. Um, but again, it depends on how they, how, how do they want to shoot themselves in the foot this time? Yes. The, the Saints might end up 13 and three, which Good luck, good, good luck convincing someone of that if you if you had told them that after they lost to the Packers in week yeah. in week three. So I'm very interested to see what the Saints do going forward. They're gonna they're gonna crush four hours, but Saints and Chiefs Super Bowl preview, perhaps. Also Chiefs and Buccaneers. That's gonna be pretty good too. Unless the, unless the Bucks uh okay, yeah. See, yeah, unless they decide not to show up. Yeah, exactly. All right, Colin. So your Seahawks just lost 44 to 34 to the Bills. What happened? The Sean, I mean, I'm sure you probably at least caught some of the game, if not all of it. The defense, Ken Norton's got to go. There's no other, there's no other viable option here. Uh, historically, it was said multiple times throughout the broadcast, Seattle has had the worst 
historic defense throughout the first seven games of their season. Um, obviously, Josh Allen isn't a slouch of a quarterback by any means. He was uh, nursing a left shoulder injury for a little bit, so obviously his non-throwing arm. Um, but he did see a decrease in his production. He finally recovered from that. And you saw what a healthy Josh Allen can do. The dude's a stud. He's tall. He's 250 pounds. Um, but when you have Russ, I mean, directing your offense, there's still a chance. I mean, the fact that they only lost by 10 is a miracle. This could have been this could have been 56 to 21 for this could have been a college football game for all I care. Um, but Russell Wilson gives any team a chance, no matter who he plays for. Uh, but this defense has 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 nothing they can do for it, except for the fact that they almost they put like seven sacks up against Josh Allen, which is ridiculous. And yet they still lose by 10, like which, which means secondary is the issue here, obviously. And I mean, when you've got Trey Flowers, um, Quentin Dunbar hasn't been all that great. Uh, Jamal Adams is finally back and getting healthy, putting pressure on. But even still. Um, Bobby Wagner can only do so much. He's not secondary. Obviously, he's that middle linebacker position. Uh, the zone formation, the zone schemes aren't working anymore. I don't know what it is with about the three-man, four-man zone that Ken Norton loves so much that apparently seems to work. It's it's not working. Um, they got to pressure the ball more. Obviously, yes, they got more sacks. We saw uh, the effect that the blitz was having on San Francisco. Granted, that's San Francisco and not Buffalo. Again, Buffalo is a quality team. Um, yeah, the, the only the only logical answer here is Ken Norton's got to go, the d- defensive coordinator for Seattle. Um, Russell is still MVP in my mind. I still don't see that changing because, again, they only lost by 10. Uh, if Russell Wilson's not your quarterback, you lose by way more. Um, you, you brought up them to having no rushing game. That's because, you know, your top two guys in Chris Carson and Carlos Hyde are both out injured, so you're having to rely on a, on a rookie to take over. Um, who's not a full power runner. He's definitely got more speed than Hyde and Carson do. But this is this is now a team that is solely reliant on what can Russell Wilson do. And while, yes, that's been the same story in the past, um, he had more help when it came to Marshawn Lynch, and now he's got a fantastic receiving core. But if you can't get Russell Wilson time, if you can't even get him some defensive help, yeah, the Seahawks could – end up winning their division but at what cost you're going to end up with more injuries you're going to end up with a shake in Russell Wilson you're going to get probably humiliated in playoffs eventually uh yeah defense has to get solidified or then we there was a, a lot of predictions of this team you know going on a potential spiral I won't say a spiral because again Russell Wilson still MVP caliber but this is this is not a 13 and 3 team anymore this is a potentially team that could go 11 and 5 maybe even fall to 10 and 6. Yeah, I the Seahawks are looking a bit too similar to last season where at the end of last season where they didn't have a running game and they were solely in Russell Wilson. The Seahawks got very lucky as Carson Wentz got uh, got injured in the wildcard round, which is the main reason why the Seahawks, despite only scoring 17 points, were able to win that, that playoff game in Philadelphia. And they got exposed in the next round. And I got a feeling that unless Seattle – can start to win enough games to get a first round by the same thing's going to happen again. Devonte Adams could feast on the secondary once again, and the Seahawks will not make it to the conference championship game. Although with a more open last year, the NFC was a bloodbath. There were so many good teams this year. that really isn't. So the Seahawks are still in a decent favorable position, but you gave up 415 yards to Josh Allen. I mean, Josh Allen's been very good this season outside of a couple games, but really, also 31 of 38 
and three touchdowns, no interceptions. He looked way too comfortable out there. And even though the Seahawks had good pass rush, you couldn't cover if you actually didn't get to Josh Allen. And, and Jamal Adams looked awful. There was a replay where Jamal Adams literally was covering a receiver. can't remember which one. And he was completely turned around and ran in the opposite direction of where the receiver was. Really? Really? Jamal Adams trade is not working for the Seahawks right now. Their defense is still bad, regardless if he's in the lineup or not. Remember, he was in the lineup when Cam Newton threw for almost 400 yards all the way back in week two. The Seahawks defense has been awful. They need a reboot quickly because they're wasting the primaries, Russell Wilson. However, Russell Wilson is not out of the woods here. I'm sorry. You can't turn the ball over seven times in the last three games. Now, I get he's had to force it, but seven turnovers. Uh, that's that's not good. Cut down on the turnovers, Russ. Stop cooking so much because you're burning your food here. Great analogy, Sean. Fan, just applaud, applause all around. Applause all around. Thank you. Thank you very much. Now, let's talk about a team that, unlike the Seahawks, is not in playoff contention. That's the Patriots. Oh, boy. Um, so, yeah, the Patriots lost four games in a row coming into this week's showdown against the winless New York Jets. And when I saw that Joe Flacco was starting for the Jets, I thought, oh, no. As a Patriots fan, I know just as well as anybody that you don't ever count out Joe Flacco. Joe Flacco has been torching the Patriots for as long as I can remember. Joe Flacco beat the the Patriots in the playoff twice and nearly beat them the other two times that he didn't. Joe Flacco could easily be 4-0 against the Patriots in the playoffs. He torches the Patriots almost every single time he plays them. It It is a nightmare almost every single time Joe Flacco plays against the Patriots. And wouldn't you know it, Joe Flacco actually has a pretty good game against the Patriots defense again. And I saw this coming. It's Joe Flacco against the Patriots. This, 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 is, this is what happens every single time. However, Adam Gase is a terrible head coach. The Jets almost never had the ball in the second half. Joe Flacco decided to throw the ball in triple coverage, for, in double coverage for whatever reason when the game was tied, gave the ball when, when they were up seven, gave the ball right back to the Patriots. Cam Newton converted, scored a touchdown, and then Patriots got the ball back again and then kicked the game-winning field goal. So, yay, the Patriots beat the Jets. Literally, this is exactly what I said when the Patriots kicked the game-winning field goal. We won? Cool. That, that, that was literally my reaction. I'm like, okay, you're telling me we were trailing against the Jets for the majority of the game? It took a late field goal to beat a winless team, the worst team in the league? Really? <sighs> Patriots do not have much talent at all. The two best players on the Patriots, the three best players on the Patriots right now are Jacoby Myers, Damian Harris, and JC Jackson. I'm sorry, who? (laughs) (laughs) My my, my thoughts exactly. JC Jackson has five interceptions on the season. Damian Harris has actually been a pretty solid running back. He has two 100 yard games this season. And Jacoby Myers had 12 catches for 169 yards against the Jets. He looked very solid. He's starting to develop some chemistry with Cam Newton. But, man, we got no talent. We need to rely on draft picks to get more talent. It's going to be a rough few years. I'm fine with it. I mean, I, I, what do I have to complain about? I, I, got to ex- 
I got to experience three Super Bowl championships. I didn't really get to experience the first three because I was a little bit too young. I started getting into football in 2005, which was the season after the Patriots won the three. So bad, bad timing there, but I got to experience three Super Bowl championships. What do I got to complain about? I get at least, a, I get at least, a, I get at least a few years to just watch the rebuild happen. And hopefully we start winning more in the future, but look, it's going to be a rebuild. At least there are some good young talent emerging. Patriots are just not good. Plain and simple. Yeah, this, and I mean, obviously, we saw this coming. Especially, you know, uh, Tom Brady on a, on his way out, signing a new contract out in Tampa, um, losing a few defensive pieces here, losing some receiving core um, pieces, and having Cam Newton come back, who was kind of in a backup role for a little bit, and after you know dealing with injury things like that, um, having to kind of fire up a new scheme, especially in a Belichick type offense, which was so often able to just rely on the Brady check down pass kind of thing where, Hey, if I don't have my 15 yard option, I got my five, I got my three to five yard option in front of me. Um, because let's be honest, that, that was the option for a long time that got them Super Bowls. Um, they were able to pick apart defenses and Cam Newton's not that same player. Obviously you had to rely on two rushing touchdowns from him. Um, still, he's still a force to say the least. Uh, but yeah, this is not, not the same New England Patriots team that we've come accustomed to seeing, but you know that you know that the New York Jets are now hashtag tanking for Trevor. Uh, so <laughs> let's uh, I guess let's see, let's just see how bad the New York Jets can truly be. And Sean, who knows? Maybe the maybe the Patriots could end up with at least a 500 record. Who knows? That would be the worst case scenario because I want draft picks. I want I don't want mid round draft picks. I want top ten draft picks. All right, let's uh, close this out with a team that yes, the the one team. In, in sports, besides probably the U.S. men's national team that we both have a common interest as far as our favorite team, that's the Seattle Mariners. Uh, Kyle Lewis has won unanimous AL Rookie of the Year. Your quick thoughts on that? Uh, I mean, let's be honest. Out of anyone else who deserved this title, to be totally honest, uh, he was absolute stud. He was team MVP easily. Um, he needs to be if not their franchise player, this is finally the rebuild system that we have been promised for so long from Jerry DePoto, uh, you know, JP Crawford, Evan White, and uh, Kyle Lewis, all given the golden glove. Um, this is, so this is now a core that you can finally start building around. And then obviously you got Marco Gonzalez, who was actually not pitching too terribly. Um, but Kyle Lewis, congratulations, you know, obviously didn't have a fantastic end of the season. I think he only hit for like a 147, which isn't great throughout all of September, but even still he went for, I want to say he went like 330 the entire season. He led um, home runs for a while, especially among the team. Uh, kids, is, kids is stuff. You can't deny it. He's got great speed in the outfield. Um, his ability to read a play before it happens is awesome. He, he can spray the ball all over. He can hit for contact, hit for power. He can steal. Um, and the last Mariner to win the award, because granted he was a rookie, was back in 2001 when Ichiro came all the way from Japan. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, obviously, as a Mariner fan, you got to be excited about it because maybe this is the future we were finally promised after not seeing playoffs for 19 years. <laughs> yes, 19 years. I have never seen the Mariners in the playoffs, which has been terrible. Yes, Carlos is the first Mariners player to win rookie of the year since Ichiro, which is why I'm a Mariners fan because Ichiro is why was the player that really got me into baseball. And that's why I chose the Mariners, my favorite team. Also, also I love the Mariners uniforms, but 
Here's the thing about Kyle Lewis winning MVP. First of all, I do have an article about Kyle Lewis for the site. I wrote it back a couple weeks into the season when he had just an absolute tear to start the season. The thing here's the thing about Kyle Lewis. He is the first part of a potential outfield core that could look like this. Kyle Lewis at center field, and then the left and right field could compose of two of the Mariners' top prospects, which which are still currently in the minors. They haven't really been called up yet to play, but Julio Rodriguez and, and Jared Kelenich, who the Mariners got from the Robinson Cano trade. So, wow, a trade actually pays off for the Mariners for once, potentially. So the, there is a outfielding core that the Mariners can build around for the next decade that could be very lethal, which is very promising. And Lewis has the slugging. Obviously, like a lot of rookies, he struggles with contact because, you know, rookies love to swing at pitches and love love to get as much action as possible. It's just why Evan White has one of the worst averages in all of baseball this season. But yeah, Kyle Lewis read rookies in 32 runs, 98 bases, and in a .364 on-base percentage. So Kyle Lewis was very solid this season, and I am looking forward to seeing how he develops in the future. And I'm excited to see how the Mariners outfield develops in the future. Absolutely. Got to be excited about it. Yes, yeah, something for Mariners to actually be excited about that isn't just getting a bunch of stars and hoping it works. Like getting Nelson Cruz, for example. I mean, he was good, don't get me wrong, but it just halted a rebuild. All right, that's going to do it for episode 19 of Blinded by Sports on the Cana Clark podcast. Be sure to check out thecanaclark.com. Colin Fuchs wrote an article about how the MLS has transitioned from a retirement league to a farmer's league. So be sure to check that out. And starting next week, Colin Fuchs will have coverage on the MLS playoffs. Be, be sure to check that out. Yes, John, Johnny Crane got to do MLB and NHL playoffs. Colin is now his turn with the MLS playoffs. So be sure to look forward to that. I was your host, D. Ken Clark himself, Sean Clark for Colin Fuchs. See you in the next segment with the head of the count.